it's Saturday, November the 20th, and this is your morning briefing from The Economist. Coming up, Rittenhouse walks free and the Fed and the ECB blow hot and cold. First, the week in brief. Kyle Rittenhouse, who killed two people and wounded another with a military-style rifle during Black Lives Matter protests in Wisconsin, was found not guilty on all five charges levelled against him. Mr Rittenhouse, who was 17 at the time of the shootings in August 2020, said that he was acting in self-defence. The trial attracted much attention. The verdict will surely cause controversy. Mixed signals about inflation flew across the Atlantic. The vice chairman of America's central bank indicated that the Fed could decide to quicken the, quote, tapering of its stimulus measures in a meeting next month. Meanwhile, Christine Lagarde, president of the European Central Bank, predicted that inflation in the eurozone, running at 4.1%, will, quote, fade on its own, as the head of Germany's Bundesbank chose a more hawkish line, urging an end to, quote, expansionary monetary policy. Poland said that Belarus appeared to be reneging on its agreement to wind down the migrant crisis it had engineered at their border. The Polish claimed that even as the Belarusians were starting to repatriate refugees and other stranded travellers to Iraq, they were driving others back to the border in an attempt to push them into the EU covertly. Austria became the first Western European country to order a full lockdown to stall a fresh wave of COVID-19 infections. It comes into force on Monday for at least 10 days. Germany's health minister said his country is facing a, quote, national emergency and warned that a lockdown cannot be ruled out. The states of Bavaria and Saxony have already cancelled their Christmas markets. Democrats in America's House of Representatives passed a version of their social spending bill on Friday. Now it goes to the Senate, where the haggling will intensify. The package earmarks $500 billion to fight climate change, while increasing subsidies for childcare, healthcare and low-income housing. Kevin McCarthy, the House's top-ranking Republican, held up the passage with a rambling eight-hour speech. Advisors to America's Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommended booster shots of the Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna COVID-19 vaccines for all adults. The decision means tens of millions of people aged 18 or over who received their second shot at least six months ago are eligible for a booster. Ford cancelled plans to jointly develop an electric vehicle with Rivian, an electric truck startup. The auto giant announced the partnership and invested $500 million in Rivian in 2019. Since then, Rivian has gone public and seen its stock market value eclipse Ford's. Jim Farley, Ford's chief executive, said his firm intends to focus on its own projects and, quote, win in the electric space. And word of the week. Weiti, an ancient Chinese game that helps to explain China's aggression towards India.
And now, here's today's agenda. With great power. Comics in America. Whether it is a sequence of satirical images in a Sunday newspaper or a collector's obsession, comics hold a unique place in America's aesthetic life. American Comics, a History, a book by Jeremy Dalber, a professor at Columbia University, was published this week. In it, Mr. Dalber sketches the fantastic successes of comics in popular culture, from the iconic image of Uncle Sam to the films of Marvel, to demonstrate how the art form has coloured the country's imagination. There is a darker side to his historical survey too. Mr. Dalba asks how the visual shortcuts that make comics so effective rely on and reinforce stereotypes, whether it be signalling that someone could not be a love interest by making them fat, or that they are not the hero because they are not white. American Comics, a history, exalts comics' ability to change hearts and minds, but does not ignore how they can trace reality's dark side. Fool's Gold Contemporary Art in Beijing On Saturday, Maurizio Catalan, an Italian artist, opens his first solar exhibition in China. The Last Judgment is appearing at the UCCA Centre for Contemporary Art in Beijing. Mr Catalan is a prankster with a penchant for controversy. In 2019, he duct-taped a banana to a wall at Art Basel, Miami, and then sold it for $120,000. His wax statue of Pope John Paul II, flattened by a meteorite, sold for $3 million. He once made a toilet out of 18 karat gold, titled simply America, and 100,000 people waited in line to use it at the Guggenheim in New York. It was eventually stolen in 2019 from Blenheim Palace in Britain though many believe this was a prank instigated by Mr. Catalan himself. The Last Judgment showcases works from the artist's three-decade-long career. In that time, Mr. Catalan has never shied away from causing offence. China's autocratic government is unlikely to be amused. Sample Bias Contaminated Microplastics Tests Plastic waste can be removed from the ocean, but not once it degrades into tiny particles. A recent meta-analysis by Japanese researchers claimed there are 24 trillion microplastic particles in the ocean. But that could be a wild overestimation, according to new research in the Marine Pollution Bulletin. It found that scientists inadvertently introduced around 70% of the microplastics in water samples during collection. Researchers cross-referenced every potential source of contamination aboard a research vessel, including the sails, which such boats often use, gear and clothes, against river water samples. Even under the strictest protocols, two-thirds of the contaminants found were present initially. Although zero contamination is impossible, it can be minimised. As most contaminants were clothing microfibres, all personnel should wear low-shed materials that can easily be spotted in samples. This will enable more robust measures. That is never a bad thing, 
Not least because the effects of microplastics in any dosage on marine animals and the humans who eat them are still unknown. Me Too in China The case of Peng Shui When a sexual abuse scandal rocks a sport, it is usually the associations that come under fire. This was the case with USA Gymnastics when coach Larry Nasser was convicted of molesting scores of girls. In the case of Peng Shui, a Chinese tennis player, all eyes are on the country's officials. Miss Peng alleged this month that Zhang Gaoli, a former deputy prime minister, coerced her into sex. It is the first such claim against a senior government member. Miss Peng has since vanished, though a letter purportedly from her taking back the allegations was published by state media. The Women's Tennis Association says the letter is probably fake. It wants a full investigation and says it may leave China if there is not an appropriate response. The Beijing Winter Olympics are coming up. This scandal could exacerbate calls for a diplomatic boycott of the Games over the government's human rights abuses. That is an option Joe Biden, America's president, is considering. Saturday Profile Hajuj Kuka Street Fighting Man Since the coup in Sudan on October 25th, Hajuj Kuka's days have been filled with defiance. Throwing up makeshift barricades against the police, distributing anti-government leaflets and encouraging people to boycott work. Such activity can be lethal. In Khartoum, the capital, at least 15 protesters were killed by security forces on Wednesday. Since the coup, 39 people have been killed and hundreds more detained. An activist and filmmaker, Mr Kuka has been involved in the struggle for civil rights all his life. Though he was born in the Nuba Mountains region, his father was forced into political exile and Mr Kuka was brought up in the Gulf and educated in America. He returned when the country ended a decades-long civil war by breaking into two in 2011. The war's conclusion did not bring peace. Mr Kuka's documentary, Beats of the Antonov, released in 2014, chronicled the Sudanese armed forces' assault on the Nubian people, including low-level bombing from Antonov aircraft. It also captured the Nubian spirit of resistance through music and dance. Mr Kuka bears the scars of his work. During the protests of 2019 that overthrew the military dictatorship of Omar al-Bashir, security men beat him senseless with sticks and whips. Another time police cut his distinctive dreadlocks. Long hair is a symbol of resistance against the police, who patrol the streets with clippers on behalf of the Islamist authorities. All the same, Mr Kuka remains optimistic that Sudan will return to civil rule. He places his faith in neighbourhood resistance committees, of which he says there are 114 in Khartoum alone. Previous anti-army protests, led by professional associations of doctors and teachers, failed to bring about democracy. But the committees, argues Mr Kuka, are non-hierarchical and democratic, transcending the deep ethnic and religious divisions that military rulers have exploited. 
the number of people joining his own committee in Khartoum has surged in the past weeks. Mr Kuka sees the committees as a model for a new Sudan where power is devolved, breaking a cycle of over-centralised, ethnocentric authoritarian rule that has plagued many African countries. First though, the armed forces will have to relinquish control. For now, the future holds more protests and, undoubtedly, more bloodshed. Finally, here's the quote of the day from Robert Altman, who died on this day in 2006. To play it safe is not to play. That's it from the Economist Morning Briefing, available every weekday and on Saturdays. You can hear interviews and analysis from our journalists, including our current affairs podcast, The Intelligence, by searching for The Economist on your podcast app or by asking your smart speaker to play the latest Economist podcast. And as a subscriber, you have access to each week's full edition in audio. Just download The Economist app on your mobile device to start listening. 